Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning, and if this is your first time here, we're, we're glad and grateful that you're here, and we'd love to connect with you before you take off. We have coffee downstairs. Um, yeah, we'd love to fellowship with you this morning. Into this morning, we continue our march through the book of, of Matthew, and before we look at the text for today, let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your scripture. We thank you for what it reveals about you. And most of all, we thank you that it presents us with your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, may all that follows be faithful to your intention for this passage. And may your Holy Spirit apply it to our heads, to our hands, and our hearts. And we ask this in the name of Christ and the efficacy of your spirit. Amen. Well, let me start today with, with a question. I, I think a very important question. What is the foundational reality of human life? What characterizes the world and everything that we do in it? And, and I have no idea how many different answers have been provided to this question throughout the cultures and the century. However, I do believe that our present moment probably presents us with one of two alternatives. The one is new and perhaps specific to our culture. The other is the perennial Christian answer. For our culture, the answer is power. For Christianity, the answer is gift. Power or gift? Power or gift? power or gift. Life is either fundamentally about power or gift. And perhaps the most influential prophet of power in, in recent times would be the French philosopher Michel Foucault. 
For him, uh, philosophy was an exercise in, in recon recognizing the ways that power structures are being imposed upon us, and not just against our will, but often wholly without our perception. We're being imposed upon by power without even knowing it. The theologian Angela Franks, she explains how this might play out in everyday life. She, she looks at the example of furniture. She says, think about the furniture common in an 18th century American home. What can it tell us? And Franks, writing in the persona of Foucault, she asks the following. How did the chairs discipline the body? How did their arrangements and sitting room structure the ways that people related to each other? And then the key question, how did all of this shape and mold the consciousness of the 18th century American? Franks then compares this with the present day contemporary, the lazy boy recliner. In contrast to the hard wood and minimal cushioning and sharp angles of the 18th century seat, the lazy boy imposes a disposition of comfort and laxity upon us. It forms us, it crafts us according to a power structure just like the older furniture, but this time to modern principalities and powers, perhaps what we might call the consumerist entertainment complex. Foucault tells us to be on guard everywhere because we are always being formed by some outside power structure. And we simply can't escape this. Something or someone is always making us be a certain way, think a certain way, act a certain way. Power is everywhere. And if one power structure is overthrown, another will simply take its place. The oppressed will simply become the oppressor, and so on and so forth. And if this is true of furniture, how much more for news channels, novels, movies, public institutions? And we have to ask, are there power structures that oppress? And as Christians, we have to answer, absolutely. We're called to be aware of this, and we are called to promote peace and justice in all areas of life, the individual level, the collective level, the societal level. But is everything power? Well, if it is, it's not clear how Foucault's own writing on resisting power is itself not a claim to power. How are his motives, how could they be any different than those he might impute to Lazy Boy or Crate and Barrel, to Fox News or MSNBC, to the religious teacher or to the atheist advocate? And so we have to ask, is there any way to escape from this power? And Foucault says, not in this life. As Foucault points out, there's only one thing that is free from this power, death. He writes, Death is beyond the reach of power. It is the moment when the individual escapes all power, falls back on himself, and retreats, so to speak, into his own privacy. As Franks explains of Foucault's position, death is the only reliable liberation. If life is ultimately about power, then the only true freedom is death. However, the Christian answer to this question about what is foundational to reality is very, very different. Again, for the Christian, the answer is gift. If what is most true about human life is power, then our basic posture to all things is a cynical suspicion. 
But if what is most true about life is a gift, then our basic posture towards all things is grateful receiving. If life is gift, then life is good and death is bad. If life is gift, then the world must always be approached with a kind of childlike wonder and gratitude. And this posture of grateful receiving is exactly what this passage is about. And so let's explore life as a gift under two headings, receiving as children and receiving as the restless. Receiving as children. In approaching this passage, we have to start by coming to terms with what Jesus says both to the crowds and to us. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. So Christ commends and praises the little children, the childlike. But why? Is Christ telling us to be childish? Is Christ telling us to reject wisdom and understanding? Well, of course not. Remember in chapter 10, Christ sent out his disciples and he commanded them to be as wise as serpents. Wisdom and understanding are important. As theologian Carlo Caffaro warns us, a church that is less rich in thought is not a more pastoral church. It's simply a more ignorant church. So then, what is Christ calling us to? Well, to be like a child is to receive, or at least it should be. To be like a child is not to earn, but to be given life and love and all the things we need to flourish. To be like a child is to trust, or at least it should be. For instance, consider the words of Corrie ten Boom in her in memoir, the Hiding Place, a book about her family's resistance to and wounding by the power of the Nazi regime. Tin Boom recalls an instance between her father and her childhood self on a train. After she asks her father what a particular kind of adult sin is, we read the following. My father turned to look at me, but to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifted his traveling case off the floor, and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corey? he said. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with the watches and spare parts he had purchased this morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. So why would her father do this? Is this a power play on the part of the father? Is this an act of harmful oppression? Is her father repressing her by not telling her everything that she seeks to know? Well, if what is most basic to human life is power, then the answer is yes. Her father is determining what and who she should be. He's not letting her decide what is proper or improper for her. He is exercising a kind of coercive power over her. For instance, I read an article in the BBC this week about parents intentionally deciding to raise their children without gender. And as one parent explained about her relationship to her child, I wanted them to be who they want to be, 
I don't want them to, I don't want to decide that for them. It's just as I don't want to decide what they grow up to do or what they decide to love or live with. And I certainly understand this position because if Foucault is right, then this makes perfect sense. If Foucault is right, then these parents are disassembling one more power structure, coercive power structure that would impose itself upon their children. But what this also means is that, strictly speaking, we have nothing to give our kids. We cannot tell them that there is a knowledge that you are just too young for. We cannot tell our children what a gift your male and female body is, regardless of how our airbrushed and glamour-obsessed culture may try to make you feel bad about it. We cannot tell our children anything that would form them in any particular way. Strictly speaking, we cannot give our children anything at all. Even to teach them right or wrong would be a form of imposition. It would be deciding for them. It would be coercion. To impart to them any notion of flourishing would be to impose coercive power upon them. To give a gift is to decide that this gift is good for your child. But to say that this is good for them is to decide for them what is good. And to decide what is good for them is simply another form of coercive power. The only true gift is giving them nothing at all, just a blank space on which they must decide all things about themselves, for themselves, by themselves. Yet this is a weight much heavier than any case of spare watch parts. And gift is not possible here, only power. Any gift we might give just is power. There is no receiving, only suspicion. But if what is ultimate is a gift, then everything is different. Then Tin Boom can trust her father and see his silence as an act of love, not coercion. Then every aspect of creation that makes up our lives should be received with gratitude, be it our bodies, our backyard, our brood of relations then our basic disposition is not suspicion, but reception, then we really are meant to be like children. Theologian Livio Molina is helpful here. He tells us, only the family allows the person to be educated in the logic of gift. For the child, everything should be gift. For the child, everything should be received. But of course, this requires that the child is loved and can trust the parent. It requires that gift is more foundational than power in the parent-child relationship. Melina tells us that only in the family do persons come to know themselves as someone, quote, to be welcomed and not as a thing to be possessed. Of course, in a fallen world, this is always an imperfect exercise, and there are many whose family experiences are a far cry from a thorough education in the logic of gift. And to be sure, the hope is that the church itself would be such a family to all of its members, but especially the young ones in our midst. And this is what Christ is calling us to, a childlike reception of love and trust to receive Christ and his message and this begins with opening our eyes right now to the true shape of our lives, where quite literally all the good things that we have are gifts. Think about the good things in your life right now. If you think the primary reason that you have them is because of how hard you've worked, 
you're wrong. If you think you have these good gifts because you deserve them more than everyone else, you're wrong. Think about the opportunities and advantages that you have been born with. Think about the things that have just happened to come together in an uncanny way through no planning of your own. If you think that these things are your due, you will never see them as the gifts that they are. Let that truth humble us and fill us with childlike gratitude for absolutely everything that we have. Let us always steward what we have well, but let us remember that everything we steward is a gift. It has been truly said that in a fallen world, everything outside of hell is gift. As the Apostle Paul asks, what do you have that you did not receive? And so when Christ speaks of the wise and understanding here, he is speaking tongue-in-cheek. He's speaking of those who have lost or forfeited the faculty, the ability of grateful receiving. The crowd is suspicious of Christ's claims, and they've lost their ability to be childlike. They think, this Jesus came through our city. He healed person after person. He served the most marginalized as if they were kings. And he proclaimed God's great message of hope. But clearly, he's up to something. Clearly, he has a hidden agenda. Clearly, there's no free lunch, and every gift has strings attached. This is just a power play like everything else. And so the crowd, trying to see through Jesus, fails to see Jesus. As C.S. Lewis writes, If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. But Christ pushes further here. Surprisingly, Christ tells us that this childlikeness is actually a kind of Christ-likeness. Christ explains, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Christ tells us that all things have been handed to him by the Father, that Christ himself relates to the Father by way of gift. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas comments here, and he says that when Christ speaks of all things, he quite literally means all things, even his own personhood. Remember that Christ is the divine Son taking human nature upon himself. And remember that God is triune. God exists as one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to be the divine Son is to be God by way of receiving the divine nature from the Father. To be the Son is to receive Godhead eternally from the Father. The deepest logic of gift just is the person of the divine Son. His very person is constituted by receiving the divine nature from the Father. The Son's mode of being is receiving. And this is not the imposition of power, but the giving of the very greatest good. The Father gives the Son his own divine nature, the greatest good, and so the greatest gift of all. And this helps us understand, right, why does Christ make this seeming strange transition from praising little children to speaking of his relation to the Father? Well, 
Among other things, it helps us answer a very important question. Why was it the Son and not the Father or the Holy Spirit that became incarnate? Why was it not the Father or the Holy Spirit that became human? Well, it's because all of creation was made through the Son, through the Word. And all of, its crea all of creation finds its ultimate pattern and mold in the Son. Just as the Son receives all things from the Father, so the human receives all things from God. The Son's receiving of all things from the Father just is the pattern of the proper human life the pattern of receiving all things as a gift from God. And if it's no knock on the Son's dignity to receive all things from the Father, then it's surely no knock on our dignity to receive all things from God, but the very greatest expression of human dignity. Yes, be like little children because this most fully represents the pattern of life that humanity is called to. A life of trust in receiving, a life that images and corresponds to the very person of the Son through whom we were made and patterned. That's why Christ can move from be like little children and then directly speak about his relation to the Father. This is the mold that he wants us to pattern ourselves after. But then why would the crowd reject him? Well, this isn't new. They're doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did so long ago back in the garden. Adam and Eve received the gift of life from God. They were placed in a creation free from corruption as a gift from God. And they received the greatest gift of all deep and full communion with God. They received everything as gift. But instead of taking a posture of childlike reception, they became suspicious. Unlike Ten Boom's trust in her father, Adam and Eve began to think that God was keeping something from them. A knowledge, a know-how, a technique to become like God himself. They began to believe that the logic of Eden was not the logic of gift, but the logic of power. And so God became not the good and gracious giver, but the insidious imposer of power. Adam and Eve believed that they could lift more than the weight of a case of spare watch parts. They believed that they could bear the full weight of their existence. And so they traded childlike trust for God, for a cynical suspicion that rejected the good life that God had graciously called them to. And here, in Christ, God again comes to humanity. Not walking in the cool of the day, but through the dusty streets of Chorazin and Capernaum. And again, God is rejected and his great gift is refused and dismissed as one more power play. But we might ask, isn't it the easiest thing in the world to receive a gift? No, because to receive a gift means that we must recognize and admit that we need it. For instance, if, if someone saw my lawn, this could very well be the case, and they gave me a bag of fertilizer, then to fully receive this gift, and so use it as the giver intends, I would have to humbly admit that my lawn is in very bad shape. Well, it's rather easy, I hope, to humble ourselves about our lawn, but the greater the gift, the more difficult it is to receive 
And this is because to truly receive it, I must humbly acknowledge that I need it. And the greater the gift, the more directly it speaks into the needs and deficiencies and faults of my very person. It's one thing to admit that my lawn is in bad shape, but how much more to admit that my very soul is floundering. And yet, this is what we must do to receive the gift of Christ. Even more, to receive the gift of fertilizer, I must accept your notion of what you think a flourishing lawn is. And clearly, mine does not meet that standard. But in the same way, to receive the gift of Christ, I have to accept what he tells me, his prescription about the good life. A gift cannot be received without the belief that it is indeed good for me and not one more power play. And that brings us to our second and final point, receiving as the restless. Let's look at how Christ presents his gift. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ is here speaking to the restless, to the weary, to those who are laden with heavy labor. And if we will not receive from God, then our only other option is to strive to make ourselves on our own terms. If it's most loving for parents not to decide anything for their children in order to avoid coercive power, then it's up to the children to decide absolutely everything. They must strive to make themselves who they are. And at first, this really does feel invigorating. The future is whatever I make it. I am whoever I make myself. My life is my own story, and I alone am the author. But again, this is a much heavier case than a box of spare parts. In fact, it's a weight that no human was meant to bear or can bear. Yet our culture celebrates placing this crushing burden upon our shoulders. Look closely. Because this burden is breaking us, especially the younger generations. For instance, reflect on the harsh, oh, sorry, reflecting on the harsh criticism that's often lobbed at the younger generation, literature professor Alan Noble, he says that his experience with his students is much, much different than he often hears in the media. And we should take this to heart given our own location here on a college campus. Noble writes, when a young person stops coming to class, binge watches friends for 36 hours, and can't seem to get out of bed, it's almost entirely because the student cares too much, not too little. They don't choose to tap out of life because they think winning is meaningless. They tap out because they're taught that winning means everything and they can't envision a path to winning. If you live in a hyper-competitive society where you know you can't possibly compete against those with biological or economic advantages, why bother playing the game? And older persons feel this too. Burnout is more rampant than ever in careers. All available weekend slots are filled with carting kids to extracurricular activities. Sleep is in shorter supply than ever before, even though our lives are full of amenities that are supposed to save us time. And busy 
is our most common answer to how are you doing. We are all breaking under this yoke. And this brings us to a deep, deep irony. The charge to overturn any and all attempts of others to tell me who I am, to undo the supposedly coercive power, actually becomes the very heaviest of burdens. But think about what Christ presents to us here. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is Christ saying? He's calling, to, calling us to rest, but he does so by giving us a yoke, which, which just seems contradictory. How can we be given rest by a yoke? How can we be lightened by a burden? Well, think back to the gift. To truly receive a gift can be a hard thing. If we truly receive fertilizer as a gift, not only must I humbly acknowledge that my lawn is in bad shape, but I must also work to actually fertilize my lawn with the fertilizer. If I don't put the fertilizer to use, I haven't actually, I haven't truly received it. A gift then does come with a burden. A gift must be used. But surprisingly, this greatest of all gifts comes with a burden that is light and easy. It's a burden that gives us rest. What then is this gift? Well, let's look at how today's passage begins. Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. The reason that Christ rebukes the crowds is because they didn't repent. This is what keeps them from receiving his gift. This is what keeps them from becoming little children who love and trust and receive. This is what keeps them striving and striving and striving to make and define and establish and prove themselves. This is what keeps them restless. And so we have to ask, well, what kind of gift is it that begins with repentance? the very greatest gift. Look at what Christ says to the city of Capernaum. You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Christ tells us that those who seek to be exalted above others will actually be brought down. This is the same power dynamic we saw in Eden. Adam and Eve try to become like God in God's place. They try to exalt themselves to heaven. But in trying to do so, in trying to exalt themselves, they fall. And now we are all fallen. We're all like Adam and Eve. We are all like Capernaum. Yet Christ tells us that the logic of gift is exactly the opposite. It's not us working our way up to heaven, but heaven lovingly coming down to us. It's not us putting ourselves in God's place, but God putting himself in our place. In Capernaum, we see the paradigm of power. In Christ, we see the paradigm of gift. And this is why we can trust Christ. This is why the God of infinite power can be trusted as the God of infinite love and infinite mercy. In Christ, God himself, the very God who created and upholds the universe by his power, he became human. In Christ, the greatest of all power, divine power, becomes weakness for the sake of gift. But how is this gift? Well, it's gift because what Christ uses his power to do. 
By his power, Christ takes upon himself the weakness of human flesh. By his power, Christ lives the perfect human life of love, giving himself, his very self, fully to God and neighbor. And this should not surprise us since the divine son is the very archetype, the very pattern of the human life. By his power, Christ suffers on the cross the very judgment that we deserve for rejecting God's many gifts and imposing wrongly our power upon others. By his power, Christ's human body is placed in the tomb, and like Capernaum, Christ's human soul descends to the place of the dead. But then, by his divine power, Christ's humanity is raised again, raised to never die again, and Christ is raised to give as a gift to us this resurrected life. Christ says to us, repent and put your faith in me. Repent because I have taken the punishment for your sins. And so receive by faith the truly good life that God lovingly intends for humanity. Both we and the crowds strive and strive and strive for a life of flourishing, working without end for jobs and salaries and reputations and achievements that are always just beyond our grasp. And even if we had them, they wouldn't satisfy like we think they would. Yet Christ offers us true human flourishing simply as a gift. He says, take freely the very things that you have worked yourself restless for. But to receive this, we must acknowledge that we have done wrong and we must confess that this life with God one day in a fully restored creation truly is the good life, what we were made for, what we were called to. To receive this gift, we must let Christ tell us what is good. That's the case when you receive any gift. How much more so this very greatest gift? We must acknowledge that yes, it should have been us on the cross, and this is difficult. But in doing this, we also profess that God loves us so much that he willingly took this punishment upon himself. And so to receive this gift, we admit that we are horribly guilty, a heavy burden, but also that we are unbelievably loved and astonishing lightness. And if this is true, then the Christian life just is learning to receive more fully what God has already given to us in Jesus Christ. And this is a burden in the sense that it is a responsibility, but it's a joyous one. How do we bear Christ's yoke? By receiving his gift. The Christian life begins by accepting Christ by faith, but just as fertilizer cannot be truly received without spreading it on the lawn, so the gift of Christ is truly received as we learn to spread his love over every area, every aspect of our lives. Receiving the small gift of fertilizer means changing our gardening habits. But receiving the greatest of all gifts, Christ, means reorienting every aspect of our life around him. We must spread Christ into every part of who we are, into our family, our friendships, our work, our study, our finances, our hobbies, our goals, our ambitions, our everything. This is how we learn to receive Christ more and more. But remember, we are little children. The gift is never earned, but always received. And that means that Christ will guide us in all of this. 
Christ himself will teach us how to become more like Christ. Christ himself will teach us to receive the gift that is Christ. And we never get past this act of receiving. Knowing and naming our need is alone what opens our hands to this gift. As Pastor Dane Ortland writes, your very burden is what qualifies you. Your very burden is what qualifies you. And so come, lay down your burden of striving that seeks to become something that you were never even meant to become and receive the good gift of flourishing that Christ offers you freely. Come and receive that light and easy yoke. Again, it's a gift. It's not power that fully and foundationally defines the human life. For the Christian, everything is gift, gift, gift. And so we should not be surprised when Jesus, the divine son whose very person is the logic of gift, comes to us and offers us the greatest gift of all, himself. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that all that you have given us is gift. The gift of creation through the Son. The gift of salvation through Christ, your Son, become flesh. Help us, Lord, to receive these gifts with grateful, glad, trusting, receptive hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.